Jesus accomplishes great things through people of faith. God's word is filled with examples of people who believed Jesus and, and saw Jesus demonstrate his power in them, through them, and for them in, in what we would call amazing ways. We look in church history uh, and we see similar examples of people of great faith where Jesus worked through their faith and accomplished amazing things through their lives. The testimony of both God's word and of church history is clear. Jesus powerfully works through faith to accomplish his will in the world. He, he chooses to work through people of faith to do the things that he wants done in the world. And when we read about people who have this sort of great faith, our, our response is probably something like, I, I could never have a faith like that. Or, I wish I had a faith as big as the faith they had. But what I want to question us about right now is, what if the amount of faith we have isn't the issue? Right? What if that's not the greatest thing that we need to worry about? For instance, Jesus tells us in the, in the Gospel of Luke, the apostles say to Jesus, increase our faith. His response is, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say this mulberry tree be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, the story, the context of the story is Jesus has just told them that they need to forgive, not just once or twice, but 70 times seven times. Their response is, whew, mercy, Lord, increase our faith so we can do it. Jesus' response to them is that the, the problem isn't that they don't have a big enough faith. The problem is they're not acting on the faith they already have. He doesn't grant the request to give them a big faith. Instead, what he tells them is that if they just had a faith the size of a mustard seed, they could say to a mulberry tree to be uprooted, planted the sea, and it would obey. Now, a mulberry tree... Uh, in Palestine, in that area, Judea, in that area, probably refers to a black mulberry tree, which could live up to 600 years, and it developed, as you can imagine, quite an extensive root system. Pulling up a mulberry tree was no easy feat. So the contrast of the tiny little mustard seed and the massive tree is meant to show us that a small faith can accomplish big things. Right? And so the key to understand is the size of faith or the amount of faith, or, or even the enthusiasm of faith, or the commitment of faith, is not what brings about the results. It's the object of our faith. Human faith is not the key. Human faith, if it's not in the right object, has no inherent value. Just because we believe something doesn't make it true. Just because we believe something doesn't make it valuable. What makes faith valuable, what makes faith powerful is what the object of our faith is. The object of our faith, of course, is Jesus. Faith is powerful because Jesus is powerful. We don't need a great faith because Jesus is already great. We don't have to have a big faith. Because Jesus is already big. The power of our faith is always bound up in the power of the object of our faith, Jesus. Faith in Jesus is powerful because Jesus himself is powerful. Faith can accomplish great things because Jesus can accomplish great things. If you are a born again disciple of Jesus, you already have faith. In Jesus, for instance, you already believe Jesus was born of a virgin. You already believe Jesus is God in the flesh. 
You already believe Jesus lived a sinless life. You already believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and the sins of the world. You already believe Jesus literally or bodily rose from the dead on the third day, never to die again. You already believe Jesus ascended into heaven. And you already believe Jesus is coming back someday. Those are the bare minimum beliefs about Jesus a person must have to be saved. In fact, if a person does not believe those things about Jesus, they are not saved, regardless of anything else they may believe. And if we believe these things about Jesus, and if we're born again disciples of Jesus, we do, then our greatest need isn't necessarily more faith. Our greatest need is to act on the faith we already have. We believe Jesus died and rose again. We have all the faith we need to do anything in this world Jesus would have us to do. We don't need more faith. We need to act on the faith we already have. So what does it look like to act on our faith in Jesus? Well, open your Bible to Mark 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses, page 762 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. When, it, when Jesus came back to Capernaum a few days later, it was heard that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer space, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Some people came, bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. And when they were unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. After digging and opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralyzed man was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and thinking over, thinking it over in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Immediately. Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were thinking that way, within themselves said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier? To say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up immediately, picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Title of the message this morning is Faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful and worthy. Father, you are worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion and worthy of our trust. As we look this morning at this passage and we see what Jesus did through these men of faith, let us be challenged, Father, to act on the faith we have. Let us believe Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and let our lives show that. Lord, if we have repented of our sins and we have believed in the crucified and risen Lord, we have enough faith. We have a mustard seed faith. And according to your word, we are able through that to uproot mulberry trees, to move mountains, to make an eternal difference in other people's lives. Stir faith in this reality in us. 
lift up our eyes beyond circumstances and lift up our eyes beyond hopeless situations and lift up our eyes to the God for whom nothing is impossible. To the God who is in the heavens and does whatsoever he pleases. To the God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or imagine. Help us to stop limiting what Jesus can and will and wants to do through us. Help us to get our eyes off of ourselves. Jesus is not limited by our limitations. Jesus is great and so we don't have to be. Jesus is powerful and so we don't have to be. Jesus is perfect and so we don't have to be. Let us trust more in what Jesus can do than we do in what we cannot do or what we do not do well. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Use this today. Stir up faith. Stir up hope. Stir up love. And launch us out into a dark world as lights blazing brightly for Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. You may be seated. In this story, we see four men who show us what it looks like to act on our faith in Jesus. In verse 5, we see the, the central, the key text in the passage. Seeing their faith. Their faith is the key to this story. Without their faith, this story doesn't happen. But their faith is in Jesus. Their faith in Jesus moved them to get their friend to Jesus. They believed Jesus could heal their friend and Jesus could do what no one else could do. And their faith in Jesus made an eternal difference in their friend's life. And it's, But we have to recognize their faith made an eternal difference, not just because they sat and believed, but because they acted on their faith. Their actions inspired by faith made an eternal difference in this man's life. So our key truth is we can impact others for eternity when we act on our faith in Jesus. When we act on our faith in Jesus, we can impact others for eternity. This passage gives us three characteristics of faith in Jesus when it is lived out. When we act on it. The first is faith does whatever it can to get people to Jesus. Now the last time Jesus was in Capernaum was in chapter 1. And he did great and mighty things. He cast demons out of people. He healed others of their sickness. And then he left for Capernaum for some time to go and minister in other places. For that was the reason he was sent. But then he came back. And when he came back everyone found out. And as soon as they knew Jesus was there, they flooded the place where he was staying. Now, I don't know that I could prove this, but in my mind, I imagine some of the people who are flooding the place where he's currently staying are people who needed him when he was there before, but didn't get to see him. Remember last time they came at sunset, they stayed all night. Jesus went out early in the morning. He went out to pray and then others came looking for him and they left. So there were people there who came to Jesus, but he wasn't there. He had already moved on. And so I imagine in the times that he, while the time he was gone, those who needed him and missed him continually said, man, I hope he comes back. 
Those who needed him and experienced him kept telling the story. It was amazing. I can't believe I'm walking again. I'm thinking clearer than I've ever thought. This is amazing what Jesus has done. And so they they hear he's back and they crowd in there. In verse 2, it says they were gathered together and there was no longer space, not even near the door. This pictures it being shoulder to shoulder. Packed in together and not even near the door means that there wasn't even room to stand near the door and kind of lean in and and listen. That there were already people doing that. And so there was just this great crowd of people. One of my commentaries suggested that houses in this day, the average house would have held about 50 people if they were shoulder to shoulder. So this is a, a big crowd for a small town, all gathered into a small space, doing all they can to to listen to Jesus. They want to hear what he says, but they also want to touch from Jesus. They've gathered together with sicknesses and diseases and and demons, and they want the help that only Jesus can give. Well, as others are listening, four men come who have a paralyzed friend, and they're carrying him, and they're trying to get him to Jesus. But they're unable to get to him because of the crowd. No one's wanting to give up their spot. I think the picture is not so much that they look at the crowd and be like, oh, that's too much. And I think they probably tried. Excuse us. Pardon us. Let us through. We've got to get through here. And people were like, wait your turn. Wait your turn. But these weren't the wait your turn kind of people. These were people who were desperately in need of Jesus. They believed. I mean, that's, that's why they're desperate. They're, they're not just desperate for help. They're desperate for the help only Jesus can give. And so they come up with a, a plan. And they're going to get their friend to Jesus. So what they do is they climb up on the roof and they begin to to dig a hole in the roof and let their friend down. Now, climbing up on the roof in those days wasn't as difficult as it sounds to us. In those days, the houses were usually flat on the roof and they were made in such a way that they would almost be like an extra floor. People would go up there and they would sit in the cool of the day or the early of the morning Um, Before the sun was out. And because it was an extra floor, there were often steps on the outside that led up. So they they walked up the steps, they went up there, and they began to, to dig down through the roof. And as they dig down through the roof, they they dig a hole in the roof big enough for this guy. And again, keep in mind, this is a guy, a full grown man, laying on a pallet. So they're not letting him down. I don't the judging by the wording, they let him down on the pallet. I don't think they like let him down through a, a round hole. It's like, I think they created a big hole and they stood on all four sides with whatever ropes they had and they lowered him down like that. So can you imagine? Imagine I'm teaching and suddenly the roof starts falling apart and dirt and all the stuff comes out and you kind of look up and there's people up there and they're lowering a guy out. Sorry, don't mean to interrupt, but I've got a guy desperately in need and Jesus, you're the only one who can help. Now, all of this they did. They they didn't let the crowds dissuade them. They they didn't let the difficulty of the circumstances dissuade them. They didn't let the fact that this man was crippled and nobody else could help dissuade them. They they knew Jesus could do what no one else could do. And because they believed in Jesus, they did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. So the question for us, Does our faith in Jesus motivate us to do whatever we can to get people to Jesus? Or 
Do we let the crowds in the way dissuade us? Or do we let the difficulty of those we want to get to Jesus and and their circumstances, do we let that dissuade us? Or do we look at how hard it would be and what it seems like a crazy idea to get them to Jesus, do we let that dissuade us? Faith in Jesus will motivate us to do whatever we can, whatever needs to be done to get our people to Jesus. Now, in our day, it's really unlikely that faith in Jesus is going to require us to unroof a house to get people to Jesus. So that's not really a practical application for us. Because, I mean, I'd say absolutely I'd unroof a house. Not like... 50 years, I'll be 50 this year. So far, I've never had to unroof a house to get somebody to Jesus. So so it's easy to say, yes, I would do anything like that. You know, God's Word gives us other things that when we talk about whatever it can. And and as I was studying on the passage, they're, they're a lot more challenging than unroofing a house. But let me show you. The Apostle Paul, who believed in Jesus, said, For though I am free from all people... I've made myself a slave to all. Why? So that I may gain the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why? To gain the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself. Why? So that I might gain those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, I became as one without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may gain those Who are without the law to the weak, I became weak, that I might gain the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul's faith in Jesus leads him to do whatever he can to get them to Jesus. And this is a great picture of how faith would work in our lives Leading us to do whatever we can to get people to Jesus. And I'm going to give you three things. I didn't put them on the screen. But three things faith does from this passage to get us to get people to Jesus. Faith serves people so we can get them to Jesus. Right? I have become a I've made myself a slave to all. Now, slave. He made himself someone who served others so that he might win them. That, that's a hard thing. Because, not, I mean, to us, I think often what we want to do, what I want to do, I'm not going to, I guess, project on y'all. What I would like to do is serve those who appreciate it, right? Serve those who are going to respond in the way I want them to respond. Serve, in order to get them to Jesus, those who are for sure going to come to Jesus. But, what about those who won't appreciate it? What about those who will serve for years and years and years and will never see it? An inch of movement toward Jesus. Will we continue to serve them in hopes of winning them to Christ? Well, that's what Paul did. I mean, that's what Jesus did. That's that's the example. So if I really believe Jesus is the only hope they have, then then I'm going to be willing to serve them for as long as it takes so that I can get them to Jesus and they may be saved. Not only does faith serve people to get them to Jesus, but faith prioritizes people over preferences to get them to Jesus. Paul said he to the Jews, he became as a Jew that he might gain the Jews to those under the law as those under the law to those 
who were without the law, became as one without the law, though not being without the law of God and the law of Christ, that he might gain them. To the weak, he became weak. To the strong, he became strong. All of this was to gain them. Now, Paul didn't compromise God's word. But at no point, that's what he means by, but not without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. At no point did Paul water down the gospel in an effort to reach people. Did he waffle on the fact People are sinners. Jesus died for sins. Jesus rose again. He didn't waffle, compromise, water that down at all. He didn't alter God's standards on any sort of morality or anything else. But if it wasn't biblical and he could lay it aside in an effort to better minister to them, he did. Paul, as a Jew, understood he was not under the law anymore. He didn't have to keep the dietary restrictions. He understood Christ had freed him. He didn't have to keep the Sabbath days and the holy days. Christ had set him free from all of that. But if he wanted to minister to the Jews, guess what he had to do? He couldn't go to the Jewish person invite them, or invite them to their house, have him a bacon sandwich and try to tell them about Christ. They wouldn't have listened. They would have been too offended. And so when he was around them, he kept dietary restrictions. When he was around them, he kept... The holy days. He did all of the things they did that didn't violate God's word in an effort to reach them, regardless of what he preferred. Now, when he was around Gentiles, he didn't keep the law because that was because again we're not under it, and the Gentiles didn't expect it, and so he lived like they did. Now, there are probably some things Gentiles did that Paul, as a lifelong Jew and as a former Pharisee, probably did not like. They probably made him uncomfortable to be that involved in, in Gentile stuff. But he couldn't tell them, you know what, I'm a Jew and you can't do that around me. Now here let me tell you about Jesus. He had to be willing to sacrifice his preferences to that. If someone was weak and they were easily offended, he was very careful to not offend them. If no matter what it was, he did whatever he could to lay aside his own personal preferences to bring people to Jesus. Now, we all have personal preferences. And, and, and they're personal preferences because we like them. And probably we hold them very dear. The older we are, the more likely we hold them very dear. And the more dear we hold them. But here's the reality. If our preferences are not the Bible then it is something that my faith in Jesus should lead us to lay aside in an effort to reach them for Jesus. Right? I mean, that's their souls are more important than my preferences. Their souls are more important than your preferences. If I really believe Jesus alone saves and He can do what no one else can do, then, then that faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus can do should motivate us to lay aside any preferences we need to lay aside so that we can reach people for Christ. And then lastly, faith faith serves people. Faith prioritizes people over preferences. Faith spends time with people. But he says he, he became all things to all people, but he might by all means save some. Now, how did he know who was weak to gain the weak? I mean, Gentile... That's easy. The, the Jews under the law, that's easy. But how did he know how did he know who's weak? And how does he know to become all things? What, what does each individual person need? How would I know that? 
If I just randomly walked up to a person on the street, how would I know what they needed from me in that moment to give the gospel a better hearing? Probably I wouldn't, would I? I could guess. So what do I have to do to know what they need from me to give the gospel a better hearing? I have to spend time with them. I have to befriend them. I have to, to know them. Know their, who they are, what they're like, what their background is. I have to know where they came from. I have to build a relationship with them. I have to show them I care. Now, I'm not opposed to just walking up to somebody on the street and talking to them about the gospel. If opportunity arises and you're gifted in that way, I say by all means, knock doors, do those sort of things. But I'll say, by and large, particularly in our community, people don't just want people coming to their house. I mean, do you? Do you want like random people coming up to your house trying to sell you their product, no matter what their product is? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you don't. Guess what? Nobody else does either. And so what we have to do is we have to get to know them. And this goes along with what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2 about not merely giving them the gospel, but he gave them his own life because they were dear to him. Now, if I really believe Jesus... Is the only way. And I really believe Jesus can do what no one else can do. And, and Red, I, Red needs Jesus. Well, my, and am I walking up to him and just saying, Red, let me read to you this and tell you to repent. If, I'm, if that's not going to work, then I'm going to have to make friends with Red. I'm going to have to get to know him. I'm going to have to talk to him. I'm going to spend time with him. Which is a sacrifice. have to do those things that are necessary to, in, in many ways in our culture today, to earn the right. To speak into his life and to tell him who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and why he needs Jesus. And, and when you look at this, I'll be honest, it'd be a whole lot easier just to unroof a house and lower somebody down a hole. These, for most of us, are difficult things to do. But when we have faith in Jesus, he's the only one that can help. We are motivated to do whatever we can to get people to Jesus. And so we're willing to serve them. We're willing to prioritize their souls over our preferences. We're willing to befriend them and spend time with them. What we see here is a part of what it looks like to act on our faith in Jesus. And when we act on our faith in Jesus, we have the opportunity to impact people for all of eternity. Secondly, faith never underestimates the power of Jesus. Faith does what it can to get people to Jesus. Faith never underestimates the power of Jesus. All of their effort meant something. Something was accomplished. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this was not what they expected. This was more than what they expected. They just expected Jesus to heal the guy. But what Jesus did was greater than that. He, he didn't heal him immediately. Instead, he forgave his sin. Their faith-inspired determination to get their friend to Jesus resulted in him being spiritually healed. But not just that. And later on, Jesus goes on and tells the guy. He heals him physically. Jesus did not only what they wanted him to do what they expected him to do but they did, but Jesus did beyond what 
they expected beyond what they anticipated. Their faith inspired determination to get their friend to Jesus resulted in him being spiritually and physically healed. If they had given up and gone back, their friend most likely would have remained unchanged. He would have remained lost and he would have remained crippled. But because they had faith, they were determined to stay the course and complete their objective of getting their friend to Jesus. And so he was impacted for all of eternity. They did all of this because they were convinced Jesus alone had the power to help their friend. Looking at the passage, it does not appear they doubted even for a minute. They were completely convinced Jesus had all the power in the world to do what they needed to do. Jesus did not even remotely disappoint them. He did all they expected and more. Jesus is the God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. I mean, this is why we put forth the effort. Jesus is able. He can do. I mean, I I can do whatever I can to get people to Jesus because I believe he's able. I believe he can do anything. Right. I mean, think of the biggest thing we could imagine Jesus doing in In us, through us, or for us, or in someone else, through them, or for them. Ephesians 3.20 declares to us, Jesus can do more. Jesus is always bigger than what we make him out to be in our minds. Jesus can always accomplish more than what we imagine he can. We cannot fully fathom the power and the greatness of Jesus. His power cannot be exhausted. His greatness is more than our tiny little minds can comprehend. He is so great and so powerful. We cannot exaggerate his greatness, his power or his majesty. Now, This is important because everything around us seems to war against us seeing Jesus as great as God's word says he is. Think about just... What the, what the world tells us. Something bad happens and the insurance won't cover it. What is that called? An act of God, right? But if something really good happens, what's that? You got lucky. Why do we think that way? Why do we think that bad things are an act of God and, and good things are a coincidence or we got lucky? It's because we've been culturally conditioned to think that way. We've been culturally conditioned not to see Jesus in the big and the good things of life. In fact, I would go so far as to say for many of us, we have had these sort of big good things happen. And when we wanted to tell somebody about it, we hesitated. We feared telling them this is what Jesus has done for me. Because we were afraid it might look foolish of what they might say. Why do we feel that way? Because we're culturally conditioned not to see Jesus in the good. We're culturally conditioned to see him as someone who may save our souls and take us to heaven when we die, but does not actively work in our lives here in the present. In a lot of ways, many times in modern American evangelicalism, we have adopted a form of deism. We believe there is a God who is a creator, but he created the world, he set it in motion, and now he sets back and is largely hands off. And uninvolved. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the Jesus we read about in the Gospels. 
He is active and involved in his world. And so what we have to do is we have to renew our minds. We have to have our minds renewed so that we see Jesus, so that we think about Jesus, so that we're aware of his actions and his work and his power. Now, easy way to do that is just to read the Gospels. Read a Gospel every day. Read the Gospel of Mark. We're going through Mark on Sunday mornings. Read ahead. Gospel of Mark. I chose the Gospel of Mark in part because Jesus is so amazing in the Gospel of Mark. And as we're going to see as we go through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to he's cast out demons. We've already seen that. He heals the sick. He's going to calm a storm, raise the dead, take five loaves and two fish and feed a multitude of people. He's going to walk on the water, forgive sin, set captives free, and, and more. More and more and more He's going to do. I mean, Jesus just does all kinds of extraordinary and powerful things in the Gospels. And what's awesome is he doesn't exert himself to do them. Right? Jesus doesn't do these great things and then is drained. Oh, my goodness. Whew, I barely won against that demon. I barely was able to heal that person. Whew. Gracious, I hope nothing else happens right now. That's not what happens. Demon-possessed person, he's like, get out. Be healed. Peace be still. He walks to him. I mean, he just he just does it because he's awesome and powerful and no one can stop him. All of the demons launched against him throughout his ministry had zero power to stop him from doing anything. All of the religious leaders of the day who came against him were powerless to stop him from doing anything. And Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, forever. He didn't ascend to heaven and take a hands-off approach to his world. He still heals the sick. He still saves the lost. He still restores the prodigal. He still sets captives free. He still does all of these things. So the question is, is our view of Jesus this big? Do we believe he is able to do all of these things and more? Do we see him as the God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine? If not, read the Gospels over and over and over again. Meditate on the works of Jesus. Meditate on the life of Jesus until you can just almost visualize Him casting out demons, setting captives free, multiplying food, forgiving sin, and just genuinely doing great and powerful things. I mean, if I can believe Jesus died and His death paid the sins of the whole world, including mine, and I can believe He rose from the dead never to die again, and one day He's coming back, as Revelation says, in power and glory, Why can't I believe everything else? I mean, if he can do those three or four things there, surely anything else is is cake, right? Surely anything else is just easy breezy for him. So we must never, if we have faith in Jesus, our faith should never underestimate the power of Jesus. This is why those who have faith in Jesus act. On this faith. 
Because they believe Jesus can do exceedingly abundantly above all they could ask or imagine. And when we act on our faith, we have the opportunity to impact people for all of eternity. And then lastly, faith is certain of the identity of Jesus. Faith does what it can to get people to Jesus. Faith never underestimates the power of Jesus. Faith is certain of the identity of Jesus. Now, as is going to be typical through the Gospels, when Jesus does something, people oppose. And in this case, there are some scribes, religious leaders, who are sitting there. And they they begin to think, Jesus said this guy's sins were forgiven. Who does he think he is? Only God has the power to forgive sins. And, and, and to be sure, they're right. Forgiving sins is the territory of God alone. God and, and God alone has the power and the right to forgive No one else can forgive sins. Right? I mean, that's huge. Right? That's, that's one of the things. You don't need to come to me, confess your sin, and I absolve you of it. In fact, I can't absolve you of your sin. Only God can. And God only does it through faith in Jesus. So they're right. Only God can forgive sins. But what they're wrong about is thinking Jesus is just a God. Thinking Jesus is just a a teacher or a miracle worker. Jesus is in fact God. God in the flesh with all of the rights and authority and power of God. So if he says someone's sins are forgiven, they are indeed forgiven. Jesus proves he has this power. First... By reading their minds, right? They thought, notice, some of the scribes were sitting there and thinking in their hearts. They didn't say it to each other. They weren't talking out loud. He didn't overhear their conversation. But he's God. And he knew their thoughts before they thought them. He knew the words on their mouth before they came out. And so he calls them into question. Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which had to throw them off. If somebody read my mind, it would freak me out. And they said... And he said, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Now, notice this next part. This is important. But so that you may know the son of God or the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Right. So only God can forgive sins. Jesus does not dispute that. But to show he has the authority to forgive sins, which would make him who? God. He said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home now. At this point, if the guy's still crippled, Jesus is a fraud, should be stoned for blasphemy. On the other hand, the man gets up, picks up his pallet, and walks out. The world is different than what they've ever known, what they've ever understood. And he got up immediately, picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone. So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus backed up his claim. He could forgive sins because he was God. He proved his power through his miracle, through his reading of their minds. Now, sadly, it did not convince them. And they would continue to be in opposition to him. However, Jesus had proven he had the authority to forgive sins because he indeed was God. Faith in Jesus believes this. Faith in Jesus does not believe Jesus is God is not a faith in Jesus. No matter what else that faith may say he is. Good man, prophet, an angel, first creation of God. None of that 
None of that's good enough. All of that is a false understanding of a false Jesus. Faith is certain of the identity of Jesus. He is God. This is one of the chief claims of Christianity. We Christianity has always claimed Jesus was more than a man. Jesus was more than a teacher, more than a prophet, more than a miracle worker. Christianity has always claimed Jesus was God. Christianity has claimed this because Jesus made this claim about himself. Right? He makes it here as we see. He, he demonstrates he is God. But he didn't just make this claim here. He made it in multiple places. The Gospel of John. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now that's a claim to being equal with Yahweh. That is a claim of being God. So here's a question. Do those who hear Jesus understand this claim? And if so, how do they respond? The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus said, why? I've done a lot of good works. What are you going to stone me for? We're not stoning you for good work, but blasphemy. Why? You being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood. They understood what Jesus was saying, and it offended them. And this is just one example among many. This is important because in our day, again, liberal scholars are pretty quick to say Jesus never claimed to be God. That was a later invention and a later council affirmed it and made it so. But it wasn't always the case. But it was always the case. It was always the case. This was always who Jesus said he was. This was always who Jesus proved he was. This was always who his disciples believed and taught he was. And the reason we have to understand this claim about Jesus being God is because it brings us to a place where we have to decide about Jesus. The great author C.S. Lewis summed up the dilemma. He called it a trilemma that it brings us to. In mere Christianity, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really (laughs) foolish thing people often say about Jesus. Here's the foolish thing. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Again, Jesus claimed to be God. So a claim to be God. Someone walked up to you and said, I am God in the flesh. How would you respond? Well, three ways. What Lewis said. One is that he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be a devil of hell. In other words, he would be demonized and deceived. Or... He is the Son of God. Those are the only real things we could conclude about someone who would say they're God in the flesh. You have to make your choice, Lewis says. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or he's a madman, or he was something worse. Lewis goes on to say, you can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet, call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The life, the ministry, 
the death and the resurrection of Jesus are intentionally meant to bring us to a point where we must decide. We must decide what we believe about Jesus. We must decide who we believe he is. Jesus did not merely heal this man to heal the man. He healed the man in part to demonstrate that he himself was the son of God. He was God in the flesh. What Jesus does makes us have to choose. And and we do have to choose. We have to choose either he is who he said he was or he is something altogether different. And if we're going to to respond and say he is who he said he was, he is God. Then for, for some, there has to be a change in our thinking. Right? There has to be what we call repentance. Change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. I cannot continue thinking Jesus was a good man and follow him as my Savior and Lord at the same time. I cannot think of Jesus as a prophet or a miracle worker and continue to follow him at the same time. I have to to change that line of thought and embrace him as, as God in the flesh. And as God, he then has the ability to make claims upon my life. And he has the ability to declare what is right and what is wrong. And since he has said certain things are always wrong, and likely I've done those things, and thought they were right. I have to change my mind about my sin as well. My sin is not okay. It's not just my truth I'm living out. It's not just the character and the nature and who I am and how I was raised or any of that. It is a sin against the thrice holy God of the Bible. It is a sin that sent Christ to the cross in our place. And we have, there has to be a change in our mind to accept that then we have to believe in Jesus, believe the gospel, believe he died on the cross for our sins, believe he lived a sinless life, believe he rose from the dead on the third day. To believe the gospel is to believe what Jesus has done for us. It's the only basis of our salvation. Listen, the number one religion in America, I'm convinced, is good people go to heaven religion. And the reality is good people do not go to heaven. Good people die and go to hell every day. Saved people go to heaven. And saved people are those who repent of their sins and believe in what Jesus Christ has done. Someone were to say, are you going to heaven when you die? He would say yes. Why? If our answer is anything but Jesus, we're not actually saved. You and I, we're not going to heaven because we've been good. We're not going to heaven because we've been moral. We're not going to heaven because we're kind or generous or anything else. We'll go to heaven only because we have repented of our sins and we have believed in what Jesus Christ has done in our place. And if we are trusting in anything, anything, even in the slightest other than Jesus, we're not saved. We need to repent and believe the gospel, believe in Jesus. And then we follow Jesus. If I believe Jesus is God and I've changed my mind to embrace that, 
And I believe His Word is true. And I've changed my mind to embrace that. And I have believed in Him. And He has saved my soul from the righteous judgment to come. The only natural response is to give my life for Him. First, Second Corinthians 5 says that we believe He died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but to the One who died for us. Following Jesus is the natural response. Truly believing. Truly repenting. All three of these are a necessary part of what it means to recognize Jesus as God. And to embrace Him as Savior and Lord. We have not embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord. We have not recognized Him as God without repentance. Without believing the gospel. Without beginning to follow Jesus. And these are individual responses. Each one of us must make our own choice about Jesus. In a later chapter, we'll see Jesus ask the disciples, who do men say that I am? They give all these answers. And then Jesus gets to the key. Who do you say that I am? The world has a lot of ideas. But their ideas don't matter. What they say doesn't matter. When you stand before when we stand before the Lord, we're not going to be able to say, well, American culture said this, or my best friend said that, or this group of people I was around, they taught that. But, but what did you believe? Who do you say he is? So that's where I want to leave us today is who do you say he is? Do you say he is God? Who died for your sins? Who rose again? If so, you have so much faith, it is unreal. The amount of things God can do in you and through you and for you, through that faith, off the charts. You believe something the world would say is unbelievably impossible. So why then would we limit what God can do in us, through us, or for us? I think one of the show I used to watch, the main character said, I try to believe five impossible things before breakfast every day. Listen, I believe in a God who became flesh, who died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I ought to believe a hundred impossible things before breakfast every day because I start my day believing something wildly impossible by human standards, by the ideas of our culture. Let's not limit what God can do. Let's not limit what He wants to do and what He will do. Let's, not, let's stop praying for more faith. We don't need more faith. We need to do what we already know we're supposed to do. We need to act on the faith we already have. And as we act on that faith, mulberry trees can be ripped up. Mountains can be moved. People can be impacted for all of eternity. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.